Welcome back to Legal Digest podcast with your host Natalie. Today I'm joined by Kristen, a full-time solo traveller since 2018. She runs an e-learning and educational business and a travel consulting business. We're going to share her journey to becoming a full-time digital nomad and how she helps other women navigate solo travel. Thanks for joining me today, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Um, So can we talk firstly a little bit why you decided to become a digital nomad? Yeah, of course. Um, I have to say it was much more of a slow, accidental slide into the digital nomad life than this one moment of conscious decision. I think like a lot of people who started before the pandemic, it was never part of my plan, like all great things. Uh, I wanted to be a diplomat, actually. That was always my plan. Um, I know that you've had Sharita on previous episodes of the Digital Nomad podcast, and she and I actually are Instagram friends, and we've bonded over this concept of, you know, wanting to run the world and change how things are done in the States and having turned into very different lives living in Mexico at the same time. So I, after I graduated from university, uh, I studied international relations and languages, and I was on this fast track to wanting to work in the foreign service, the diplomatic cone of the U.S. State Department. And I had chosen to enter the Peace Corps. I knew I wanted to spend time living abroad and understanding how people in different countries thought and felt about different things before ever trying my hand at anything policy related. Um, For those of you who don't know, the Peace Corps is like a civil service or national service program that sends Americans to developing countries all over the world to work with local communities on sustainable development projects. It's famously flawed (laughs) and uh, of course is not a perfect program with some neo-colonialist tendencies, but uh, I saw it as a flawed vessel, but a great opportunity to gain field experience and and a deep understanding of people outside of my community. Um, However, (laughs) part of Peace Corps' body reputation is really detrimental and ignorant treatment of mental health and reproductive health. And I would say that was the first time I ever encountered a big barrier to being a young solo woman trying to travel, live abroad, work abroad, do things in the world. Um, I had accounted 218 pages of medical paperwork um, from doctors, secondary opinions, psychiatrists, gynecologists. Then two days before my deployment, there was a last minute staff change in the Peace Corps Morocco office that changed my life for good, um, revoked my final clearances. And it was my first big no to honestly almost anything (laughs) ever. And as I'm sure you can relate to your first rejection as a young adult is always pretty, um, pretty rattling. And I learned so many valuable lessons there, which is that, you know, simply having a uterus (laughs) is going to change things for me trying to live and work abroad um, and having some honesty and transparency about mental health can come back to bite you. Um, You can be perfectly physically and mentally fit and someone will still say that you shouldn't be going somewhere because you're a woman, because you're on birth control, because you've seen a therapist. Um, There's always going to be someone wanting to shut a door in your face for some reason or another. And I think that was a really important experience to go through in the beginning And it landed me in China. So there I was living in my parents' barn with my high honors degree doing absolutely nothing for me. Um, Graduating into the wake of a really 
monumental election for the US yeah. and a State Department hiring freeze. And I had an identity crisis. My perception of who I was was completely wrapped up in the career that I wanted, being mm-hmm. the IR girl, the nerdiest of the policy nerds. I speak Arabic, I code, I've got the internships and the honors. How, how am I not hireable? And that was my second set of valuable lessons. Your work is not your identity yeah. and work will never take care of you and you cannot depend on it. So since then, building a life that balances work and not work and diversifying income streams and working for myself became really big priorities. So I started my full-time travel journey then in 2018 by moving to China to teach English, which was rather unexpected. I never thought I would have the career that I have now in e-learning and educational consulting, educational writing. At the time I thought, well, (laughs) I'm unemployed. I love volunteering as an ESL literacy tutor. I had been doing that for six years. I love working with kids. I have my certifications. Why don't I go learn Chinese and become more hireable, diversify my skills, maybe see what else is out there for me. Um, I had some classmates from university working and studying there in diplomacy and international security, and they really encouraged me. So um, fast forward to one year after moving to China, I had learned almost no Chinese, (laughs) found uh, market opportunities, within the for-profit ESL industry in East Asia. Some people think of teaching English as a very backpacker job, and there are those opportunities. (laughs) However, teaching in markets like China, Korea, Singapore, uh, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, these can be really great ways to kickstart your digital nomad journey or your international journey. Of course, I don't recommend doing it if you don't love teaching or working with kids or working with business English adults. Um, You definitely have to want to do it for the job as well. But being able to spend a year saving up and building your business on the side is definitely a valuable on-ramp. If you're looking to become a digital nomad and you're at all interested in education, I've seen people go from the ESL industry to corporate recruiting, marketing, um, public speaking, Uh, corporate training models, uh, e-learning, and uh, kind of corporate instruction, writers, uh, even into graduate school and and really high-level startup positions. So it can be a great um, kind of starting point to bounce to other things, and you meet the most amazing people. Um, After my time in China, I went to teach in Thailand, Uh, wanted to slow down focus on my health. And from there, I really started focusing on building my online income streams. I had started building what was a prototype of what is now my e-learning business and really just started to make a lot of mistakes, which is really good. I, I recommend actually having another very reliable source of income while you're starting out with your own business because you have the freedom to make mistakes. I don't think very, very good creative things come from the pressure to feed yourself. I don't think that that's effective personally. So having the opportunity to say, okay, well, I have this nine to five. For me, it was an eight to four, um, a few days a week. And I have a lot of flexibility with it. I'm in Thailand. I can travel Southeast Asia constantly and I can start building my business on the side. I started writing. 
I started teaching, I started looking into, well, how can we redesign e-learning for the way brains actually learn languages? How can we do this a little bit more efficiently? Um, how can we take a data-driven neuroscience-based approach to e-learning instead of just hammering the same things over and over again or doing things based on how much money we can charge? What if we actually looked at the way brains learn languages and not just the way they learn languages, but the way they acquire languages. And we applied that to how we approach e-learning. Uh, and so that's kind of how I got started there. Then the pandemic hit. <laughs> I left Thailand in an evacuation rush of chaos and backpacks. And um, I ended up on this really weird series of flights through Qatar <laughs> and finally found myself living in Mexico. Right. Because it was the only place it would take me. Right. Okay. Um, and I, I hunkered down there and I specifically remember how much money I had in my bank account. And it was scary. I had spent $2,800 on an evacuation flight. and I was flying without any sort of safety net that I wanted. And then it was pedal to the metal. I have to make this part-time thing that I had space to make mistakes with into a full-time self-supporting business for however long this pandemic goes on. Yeah. And I thought I was gonna be doing it for a few months and then returning to a brick and mortar job, preferably in ed tech. And as the months stretched on and the business expanded, I realized, okay, well, actually I could just live like this. Every month is going better than the last one before. I'm being challenged. I guess I'm a digital nomad. And I don't think it really happened for me that feeling like I was one until probably six months into the pandemic when the idea that I was going to go back to Asia and go back to working in education administration, education technology, really it became clear that that was not going to be an option anytime soon. That's kind of when I started identifying as a digital nomad and realizing, okay, this isn't temporary. This could be my whole life if if I want it to be. Yeah. And just going back to what you were saying before about, I guess, creating like your own work and not thinking that your your employer is actually there for you because, you know, I agree with you in that way because they're just there because the business has needs and it might be at that time you are that need because you need to fulfill a role. But ultimately, they if they need to make the decision to let you go or change that role, then you again, you have to keep adapting and creating like your own income with your own business I feel is gives you that ultimate freedom and flexibility so I'm really glad that you kind of like touched on that and how you did it because that's something that's been you know really interesting to me over the last few months as I've been sort of re-evaluating what it is that I want to do as well um so can you tell us like how you decided on doing an online teaching um sorry, an e-learning and educational and travel consulting business rather than pursuing a corporate remote job? Yeah, um, I will say corporate was never really on my radar. I, I think for me personally, the choices were going the public service route in the States, which involved being in DC for extended periods of time or working for embassies, incredibly competitive, very low pay, and the same barriers that I faced, for example, with the Peace Corps. That was my first taste of government bureaucracy and red tape and how little you are valued as an individual there. Um, so really my choices were personally 
building my own online businesses and my own streams of income and working for myself or going back to pursuing government civil service work, um, preferably in the, in the diplomatic cone, um, or going back to a physical job in education, ed tech, or administration. So I will say that, thank God, I never really considered corporate or had a choice, but I know a lot of people, that is their dichotomy of options. I'll say that my first deciding factor was flexibility. After having spent a few months with no flexibility in like whether or not I could wear a mask or where I could go or whether or not I could fly, my flexibility was, okay, well, I'm going to go paddle boarding this morning and do this work later, right? Now, I don't want to be misleading. In the first six months of my business, I worked 80-hour weeks and I worked insane hours. And because I was still teaching the vast majority of my classes and I was interviewing people and, and really stuck on Zoom for 80% of my day, I did not have as flexible of a schedule as I do now, for example. So I, I wanna be upfront about that, that you know I say I, one of the main reasons I did it was flexibility, but if you are building any business from the ground up, chances are you're not gonna have as much flexibility as you think you have in the beginning. You choose to build an online business rather than a corporate or brick and mortar job not because you get the flexibility immediately, but because you're building an on-ramp to a life of flexibility. It's that short-term versus long-term differential, right? And it also depends how long you've been in that industry and what kind of industry it is. For me, it was the flexibility. Having, having tasted the sweet nectar, having really experienced the benefits of that flexibility, it would have been very hard to go back to turning in paperwork for my supervisor's approval to take two days off, right? So when someone is considering whether to have a work from home or work from anywhere corporate job versus building their own business, I will say your work from anywhere corporate job is gonna be more reliable income. It's gonna make a lot of traveling easier for you at hours. And what people don't want to hear, you're going to work less. You're going to work less working for someone else and being protective of your healthy boundaries than you are working for yourself, knowing that every extra hour you put in is the growth of your business. It is much harder to close the computer, right? And it is much harder to justify the balance. And in the beginning, it's a slog, right? Yeah. So if you, if you want it easier, definitely go for a corporate remote job. If you're burned out and you don't have this in you right now, go for a work from anywhere remote job. The downside there is the security. At any point, they could do what I've had so many of my colleagues and digital nomad friends and you know remote working friends have happened to them, which is getting called back, saying we're going back to the office or we're going back to hybrid. Hybrid drives me <laughs> because the whole point is you're acknowledging that we've proved that we can be productive remotely, yeah. but you want to keep a corporate leash on us. Yeah. Right? To me, that is some kind of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. If you feel that your employees are capable of working productively and remotely and collaborating in that way online multiple days per week, and then you bring them into the office on set days that they can't choose per week, meaning that they can't really take extended time away 
what you're doing is preventing a mindset of work-life balance. Yeah. You're not really about the productivity and collaboration. You're about your bottom line and keeping your profit at the forefront of your employee's life. So yeah. for me, hybrid is, <clears throat> hybrid is, you know, capitalism run amok in some ways. Yeah. My personal opinion, I know people who swear by it. Um, and I think it's down to knowing yourself and the way that the way that you work. For me, uh, the second component was about control. Uh, not to sound like a control freak, but there are very few schools, brick and mortar schools or online schools in East Asia or anywhere else that are taking a data-informed, data-driven, student-first approach to education. That's the bottom line. <laughs> right? None of these schools are going to like me very much for saying this, but I'm going to be honest. Every international school and training school you see is about pacifying parents and building reputation. Now, some go about building that reputation by trying to be the best educationally. A lot of them go about that by having the whitest staff possible, trying to build a very Aryan-looking brochure, right? And hiring consulting and marketing firms to fluff their image and having kind of the most social elite of that area attend their school. Some really try to do it well. And they say, we're just gonna have this top-notch curriculum and we're gonna have the best educators and we're gonna have the most innovative and research-based approach. And we're really gonna put student social, emotional and lifelong learning and intellectual curiosity at the forefront. I've seen one of those in my entire career, one. Right. So if I said, I don't wanna be part of the problem, I want to help children and families pursue a more efficient and a more fun and a more meaningful approach to lifelong sustainable learning that they enjoy. Then really the only way I could do that was by taking what I knew was best for young learners especially and for families learning together, build a curriculum off of that and do it myself. There are very few schools that would have given me the flexibility to teach the way I knew my students needed to learn, right? And I'm not arrogant enough to say I know it all in terms of, you know, language acquisition or the science of learning. I know I don't. But the difference is these schools actually, most of the educators and administrators there, they do know as much as me or more. And they're choosing to run things a different way. So for me, it was the flexibility to do what I knew was best for my students and to take a better approach to e-learning. Yeah, and it sounds like it's not just the flexibility that you're getting, but also you've you found your purpose and your work. And I think that's really important. And a lot of people are searching for that now. Purpose. It's important, but it's also dangerous. Yeah. Right? It's important <laughs> to have a purpose, but it's also dangerous because if you really believe in what you do, yeah. buckle up you're in for a lot of work yeah. and a lot of struggle in finding your balance um I also wholeheartedly disagree with the idea that your career mm -hmm. your paycheck mm -hmm. and the things you like to do all have to be the same thing yeah you can be taking a paycheck doing something that you get a net neutral out of you don't hate it you don't love it Right, maybe you like your coworkers and maybe your clients are cool and this is a net neutral for you. 
And that financial security allows you to do the things that you love as hobbies, Mm -hmm. right? I see a lot of people doing that very well. Mm -hmm. Someone who's working remotely customer service for a top tech company in customer service training, um, she's making a very comfortable salary. She doesn't love training customer service employees and creating training modules for them. For her, that's a net neutral. The work is fine. The people are cool. She has a lot of flexibility. But what that lets her do is kite surf and live in Egypt. Right. right? So some of it is don't feel like you have to find the perfect fully remote job or build the perfect purpose-driven business in order to start. Where your paycheck comes from and what you love to do, they can be different things. And it might be even easier to have your work-life balance if they are different. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I guess that kind of brings me on to the next question, which is what type of jobs people can do if they want to have the digital nomad lifestyle? Because a lot of people say to me, well, my boss won't let me work from abroad for more than 90 days. Um, I've looked on LinkedIn, all these job websites, and I just can't find anything. So what really can you do to sustain that lifestyle? Yeah, you know, I feel like that that Lion King moment, <laughs> Natalie. Everything the light touches is yours. <laughs> yeah. um, but but really, it's it's true. There are very few things that you cannot build a travel lifestyle out of if you really want to. I know travel nurses uh, who take short term contracts in different cities, different countries. Um, that's maybe the highest paying digital nomad job that I, or not digital nomad, but full-time travel job that I know of. Um, And some of them also do online, you know, telemed consulting. And that's probably the highest income option that I've seen. So if you're in the field of medicine, some people think, you know, it's got to be working for a hospital, working for the NHS, whatever it is. But there are from medicine to law to marketing to education, there is a way to do it abroad or do it remote. And I feel like one way that we've gone wrong is by saying that digital nomad is the only way to do it. I think people are really skipping over working abroad, right? Mm -hmm. Having a physical job in a foreign country that might be in-person or hybrid that allows you to travel that region regularly. Um, I think that that's being overlooked a lot (laughs) because as you've said, if you have a job in Europe or the UK working for a company, mm-hmm. a corporate or nine to five job there, very few of those positions are really work from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's not just evil bosses saying we want to control you. Some of it is, you know, GDPR compliance. Some of it is client forward, client facing issues that re- require more physical presence. Um, levels of monitoring and evaluation that are required, you know, some of it is your particular job might just need a physical component, Mm -hmm. right? It's very hard to do if you already have a corporate job that was in person before the pandemic. That is the transition I see people struggle with the most. You had a corporate job, it was in person before the pandemic, it went remote, and now they're in this sort of limbo or in-between space there are effective ways to negotiate with your boss for remote working capability. However, not everyone's boss actually has the authority to give you that. Mm -hmm. There are company-wide policies and the larger the company, the more ironclad they are. 
that keep you in country for a certain amount of days per year. One thing I'm seeing a lot with both the EU and the US is a tax-based restriction that says you can only spend 30 days in each country that you work remotely from. Or work from anywhere, but you have to move every month right. or even shorter than every month. So you can't really benefit from the geo arbitrage of going to a, a different lower cost of living country because you can't rent long-term. Yeah. And you have to fly or take the train or take the bus yeah. and, and spend a really high amount on transport at least 12 times a year. Um, that's also exhausting mm -hmm. as someone who has traveled at very different speeds and prefers to slow mad. That sounds like just hearing it makes me tired. Yeah. And so if you're with a corporate or nine to five job that was in person before the pandemic, the first step is to find out, does your supervisor actually have the authority to give you true work from anywhere authorization. Yeah. I will say that most don't. From my experience working with a lot of digital nomad coaching clients, um, I work with a lot of young women who are trying to become digital nomads. And the barrier that a lot of them are facing is they make their case. They bring in the data of how effective and productive and innovative they have been while working remotely. They bring it to their boss. And they say, this is what I can do. Here's what I need in order to stay here. And this is why, what can we work on? And they always come in with other offers ready to go so that they can leave if these negotiations don't go the way they need them to. And what a lot of supervisors have end up, ended up saying is, we can give you some more flexibility, but we are not authorized to give anyone in this company a full mm -hmm. work from anywhere status. Right. So the first step is knowing what your boss or supervisor is authorized to give you. Yep. Right. The second step is negotiating effectively. Um, Rowena Harrigan from Row Remote recently put out an article with the Harvard Business Review about how to become a digital nomad. Included a section about negotiating with your boss for remote work. That's a really good starting point. I would say start with gathering data. Yep. Not about just how productive you've been or lack of errors, but what is your specific and unique value add to your supervisor and to your company from the times that you've worked remotely? These mm -hmm. are the things that I was able to improve and innovate while working remotely. And give them a reason to bet on you. Yeah. Right? Um, if you're not going to negotiate with your existing boss to work remotely or that's not effective or they don't have the authorization to give that to you, what you'll find is most long-term sustainable digital nomads work for themselves, which is hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I think some of it is people who have been in traditional nine to fives or corporate jobs are looking for just the same thing in a different flavor, right? I still want gelato, just pistachio, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I still want to work for someone else and have the security of a paycheck and do the thing that I'm used to doing but I want to be able to do it from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Not to be a negative Nancy, but that is a lot harder than people think it is. Most people who are doing this sustainably with a good balance and financial security are working for themselves, right? So to sustain the lifestyle and to be a full-time digital nomad effectively, my best advice is to work for yourself. Yeah. Right? There are some industries 
that are it's easier to do that than others. For example, tech, marketing, copywriting, um, consulting in high-skilled services like medical or legal. Um, if you don't work for yourself, you're negotiating with your boss or you're lying to your boss about where you are and using a VPN, which I really don't recommend. I've never seen that work out for anyone. Yeah. You're bouncing around every 30 days um, or you're in a work from home, work from anywhere job that could be pulled at any moment, right? That could, that could be called back to the office. So I recommend working for yourself personally, taking the skills that you have and the things that are in demand and finding a way to match them and giving yourself a six to 12 month on-ramp. You know, it takes a long time to build a remote business, probably longer than an in-person business um, to a fully sustainable personal income. Of course, this is dependent on your personal situation and your savings and your industry, but I always advise, advise people to give themselves a six to 12 month on-ramp so that they can feel free to make mistakes and take the clients that they wanna take. Um, if you're freelancing, a lot of people have um, positive experiences with freelancing websites. If you're looking for a fully work from anywhere, fully remote job, there are job boards for that. Skip LinkedIn. No one is getting fully remote good jobs on LinkedIn. I have literally never seen it happen. Yeah. And I hear lots of clients and lots of friends bemoaning how much effort, how many hours they're putting into that with no yield. It's super competitive. The search functions don't work for legitimate work from anywhere, fully remote positions. So skip LinkedIn and go go right to the job boards that have what you want. Remote.co, FlexJobs, we work remotely, skip the drive, no desk, AngelList, Dribble. There are tons out there. Um, it's it's definitely smarter to go with a more niche job board if you've decided that you're going to go the corporate or working for someone else route. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is definitely not really aimed at digital nomads. It's definitely like the more, it's the corporate world, isn't it really? It's, it's slowly changing in terms of, of LinkedIn content and content creation. Yeah. I'm all for creating content related to your industry and I think you should, especially if you're building your own business. You know, keep your LinkedIn presence, but don't apply for jobs there. Yeah, yeah. And do your research. You know, there, there must be, there will be things that you'll have to research into tax implications and visas, et cetera, and all that kind of stuff. So um, that when you go to your boss, you can be like, well, it is possible. There are ways around it. And I've had some advice and I've looked into it. So I think that's quite a good tip. But so as a female, I think, you know, there are a lot of things that we have to think about before we travel. We have to think about safety, accommodation, um, just so many things on the practicalities on traveling alone. So have you got any tips for females that are traveling solo? Yes, um, so many. <laughs> <laughs> I think it all kind of falls under the umbrella of do it scared, but do it prepared. Mm -hmm. right? Everyone's really on to this, you know, real sound and TikTok audio of like, if you can't beat the fear, do it scared. And that's like slightly reckless advice. <laughs> like, yes, do it scared, do it scared, but prepared. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. There are going yeah. to be things that freak you out. But preparation is the difference between feeling that fear kind of ever present and making poor decisions that put you in danger versus being able to navigate 
that. Right. The fear is just like this little thing in your backpack or your mm -hmm. suitcase instead of this cloud looming over you. So do it scared, but prepared. When I say prepared, I mean, do your research, like less destination specific, like what should I do here research and more what have other women's experiences been like here? What are the things that I care about? I think of the world as an ice cream shop of sexism and gender-based violence and discrimination, right? Patriarchy is universal. It's a find your flavor kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. right? There are women I know who love Morocco. Morocco made me physically and emotionally exhausted. That particular flavor or brand of street harassment mm -hmm. is not my cup of tea. Yeah. Right? I had really positive, beautiful, wonderful experiences where I felt very safe and very free and very low stress as a woman alone in Mexico, even in pockets of Colombia, mm -hmm. in parts of Guatemala, um, in Palestine, yeah. in the Balkans, where other women who I know who traveled there solo did not have that experience, yeah. right? Because their personal preferences and personality are different. I hate to say like, pick your, pick your favorite type of danger and sexism, but I mean, that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> World is a, a big, bad, scary place, but it's also a really, really beautiful place. Yeah. Most people are good. Most women will help you in any situation. And it is never as bad as you think it's going to be. So it's it's kind of this taste test of, of know what bothers you and know what you prefer. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's very different for me as a white woman than it is for women of color. Um, the safety factor there is, is different. So really, you know, consider talking to people of your same race and religious background, women who have traveled to these places. Yeah. Prepare in the research. Who should you listen to? People who have lived there for an extended period of time, people who have visited and are veteran travelers, people who live there. Who shouldn't you listen to? Um, your fear-mongering family who have never been there. The Karens and Kens of Instagram and Facebook. We're like, it's so dangerous. There is a negative news bias about the entire world and especially the developing world for us in the US and the UK and Europe, right? Yeah. We only hear about these global East and global South countries when there is an issue of international security, natural disaster, bombing, devastation, whatever it is. Um, yeah. So don't listen to people who have all of their knowledge coming from the negative news bias, which is the vast majority of people. Listen to people who actually have experiences there and who share your identity, right? One of the biggest mistakes that I made when traveling as a solo female, and listen, I know women who have had very positive experiences in Colombia. Sharita, who's a former guest on your podcast and, yeah. and a friend of mine being one of them. It is very individual. Mm -hmm. I was not happy in Colombia. And I did not feel safe in Colombia. Okay. And I had a very different experience to a lot of other people living in Colombia. And my issue was that I listened to my dude friends. Right. <laughs> the digital nomad world, especially in 2020, was yeah. very male dominated, very tech heavy. It is slowly shifting, which is great. Um, sometimes I'm at a table in a co-work and like the four women in the co-work are all just kind of banded together, which is amazing. Um, but a lot of spaces are still very male dominated. Colombia, parts of Central and South America, um, 
the Balkans is a sausage fest. I'm going to be totally um, honest. I've been in Eastern Europe in the Balkans, co-working spaces and, and cafes and, and digital nomad groups here and expat groups. It is very, very male dominated and people are very welcoming and they're happy to see you there. But if your community and the advice you're getting is from a bunch of dudes, bear in mind that you know these dudes in their work setting. Yeah. You're friends with them in your Western work setting. Mm-hmm. You might not consider the fact that some people come to Colombia for an abundance of women readily available, eight balls readily available. They're drugs for purchase on a PDF menu that gets texted to them every day. Right. And the ability to bring prostitutes into the co-working space. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so <laughs> everyone has had very different experiences in Colombia. I was really unhappy in Medellin personally. Right. Okay. Um, I am all for the third wave and fourth wave feminist ideas of, you know, pro-sex work. But there is a different animal entirely when you're looking at I can't even call them women girls you know 14 15 16 year old Venezuelan girls without work papers coming to Colombia as part of an international crisis being purchased by tech giants (laughs) living in your building and being paraded through your co-working space on the way to their apartment the middle of the day, right? I I really had difficulty seeing things that I had a gut feeling moral reaction to mm-hmm. on a regular basis. I had a difficulty with the general moral deprivation <laughs> of the expat community available to me in Medellin. There are great pockets, you know, salsa classes and bachata classes, and there are groups of especially women of color and women in tech who have these really great communities in Medellin now. I have to say that I didn't find myself tapping into those. It was really hard to make friends and want to make friends that I was comfortable making. And you end up with this dichotomy of, am I going to make travel friends that I would never want to be seen with, whose reputation I would never want tainting me, whose values I would never want rubbing off on me? just because they're a travel friend and it's temporary and it's transitory or am I going to be a little bit more alone and I never left Colombia even when I was feeling that way I stuck in it for like three months because everyone else told me that Medellin Mm -hmm. was a digital nomad paradise but looking back it was all my male friends Mm -hmm. right who either participated in this or didn't participate in this and didn't find it bothering them and were able to keep boundaries up in their travel friendships and and still find community there and not have a problem with it. Um, I was very uncomfortable there and I learned an important lesson, (laughs) which is that there's nothing wrong with you if a destination that everyone else says is the best digital nomad hub is not for you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just not for you. And when you're looking at your preparation for how to prepare for a solo female travel journey, do your research who share, with people who share your identity. Listen to other women and listen to other women of your race or your religion or your background who maybe have a different experience to the people who are writing these blogs and lists. 
mm-hmm. and the people who are dominating the forum. Um, in terms of little things, right? Um, with safety, I think the best tool is actually the simplest, which is a SIM card. I never go anywhere without a working SIM card. Most safety disasters were caused by or could have been solved by (laughs) having data in the moment. Um, I break a lot of the rules. Sometimes I walk alone at night. Sometimes I wear a hot revealing dress, right? And it's okay to break the rules when you've spent more time in a place and you've gotten to know the community really well. So one benefit of moving slowly is you can start to feel your way around, well, okay, well, what do local women do? What do expat women who've been living here a long time do, right? Which rule can be flouted here and and which ones can't? And part of that is the safety and security of always knowing that you have access to uh, a personal alarm app, a safety tracker app. Um, Personally, I use BeSafe, but everyone has a different one. I recommend personal safety apps and SIM cards. Being disconnected and not being able to call for help physically or digitally um, will leave you feeling very naked and making much more cautious decisions. So the longer you travel, the slower you travel, the more connected you are when you travel, the safer you will find yourself. Um, There's a really small thing that has been life-changing and peace of mind inducing for me, which is a tiny $2 rubber doorstop. You know, those little kind of triangular wedges that you put to keep a door open. You can also use them to keep a door closed. Um, A lot of times we find ourselves in hotels or Airbnbs or or hostel private rooms that have a questionable lock. (laughs) Um, And even if they do have a good lock, you never know who has access to that. Anyone who works there, anyone who has previously worked there, and any of their friends who have access to their pockets or their backpacks. That's actually quite a lot of people. So the simple trick of jamming the rubber doorstep under the door before you go to bed to keep it extra closed (laughs) uh, has been uh, really helpful for me. And it's so tiny and lightweight and easy to carry. Uh, I know women who carry personal alarms that you kind of like strap them over a door handle. Um, I'm terrified of getting one of those wrong and setting up a loud alarm at three in the morning. So I stick with my my rubber doorstep, but it's figuring out what creates peace of mind for you and what are the biggest risks where you're going, right? Um, in terms of traveling finances, always have at least two debit cards and at least two credit cards. Keep them in mm-hmm. separate spaces in your stuff. Don't keep them all together. Have a decoy wallet if you're going to a place where pickpocketing or robbery are really common. Like, I don't know anyone who's lived in Colombia long term and has never been robbed (laughs) most of the time at gunpoint, um, myself included. So uh, if you're going to a place where robbery is a serious issue, have a decoy wallet and a decoy phone um, so that it's more of a when and not an if and you feel prepared. Um, And in terms of, and then you don't, lose all of your money. <laughs> in terms of finances, the best thing you can do is, is have really good insurance. Um, I use a travel credit card that insures anything I purchase on it, which is really nice. Okay. And I also have a travel health insurance through Safety Wing. Mm-hmm. Um, being insured and having your money in different places uh, can really help you to feel secure so that if something happens, you know, if something gets stolen, if you get sick, you're not financially or personally screwed uh, in another country. 
when you're looking for accommodation, always look for reviews from other women. Booking and booking.com, Hostel World, Airbnb, either with photos or with reviewer information, you can now see most of them, their gender and age. So try looking specifically for reviews of people who share your identity um, when you're booking accommodation and you'll find that their ideas of how safe things are and how much they enjoyed it will line up pretty well with your experience. Yeah, thank you. That's super helpful tips. And I think obviously the overriding issue for women is safety and all the things you mentioned. Um, really, I feel like that's kind of the main focus is when you're going to a country is, are you going to be safe walking around? But how can you keep yourself safe? Like, as you said, like keeping a phone on you and having like an extra wallet and an extra phone in case you're held at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. Like, these are not things you probably think about on a daily basis if you were in Europe or somewhere else. But it's just interesting to see how we have to think about that versus what men would have to think about, you know, whether that would ever cross their minds. Oh, for sure. And yeah. I would say Europe isn't even off limits on that. You know, some yeah. of the worst catcalling and pickpocketing I've had was in Rome right. <laughs> and in Sicily. So um, you never know. And uh, the safety systems that I mentioned, they aren't to keep you living in fear. They're mm -hmm. to have these systems so that you don't have to think about it in your day to day. Yeah. You know what your system is. So now fear is a little thing at the bottom of your bag because you know that you are prepared for it. Yeah. As opposed to feeling like you're walking on eggshells walking around. And while that won't give you the same experience as a male traveler, it'll give you a lot of peace of mind and let you focus on the positives and mm -hmm. the beautiful experience of the place that you're in instead right. of always thinking about safety. I don't even think about it. Okay. Okay. Like, I'll be honest, it's just autopilot. Yeah. So I hope that more women can can get to that mindset where they're not feeling like just because they're a woman traveling alone, they have to think of safety all the time. If you prepare for the safety stuff, it can be something that's just on autopilot for you mm -hmm. and lets you really enjoy the place you're in a lot more. Yeah, so important. And so then that kind of brings me on to the last question, which is whether there are any resources, apart from some of the ones you've mentioned previously, that you'd recommend for women who are thinking of traveling solo? I think one of the best resources are the Facebook groups. And I know this is like very 2008, but the Facebook groups are really helpful. They're the only reason I still have a Facebook account. Um, some really good ones are Host and Sister, which is a, a travel Facebook group for women who are going abroad or who are looking for a travel partner for a certain trip or a local in the place that they're going to to show them around, another traveler who's gonna be in the same place for a meetup. They have being a host, being a guest, doing a travel meetup. And I've made a lot of friends through that Facebook uh, group. I think I probably meet one person in each country off of that group minimum uh, without really trying. So if you're concerned about being solo, that's definitely a place to go. Uh, that's for traveling and digital nomading alike. Personally, um, I found that a larger percentage of people on there are digital nomads now, so it's it's nice. Um, and some other ones are women who travel, girls gone global. There, mm -hmm. there are a lot of them. Yeah. Um, digital nomad women is a good one. I say the more specific, the better on the Facebook groups, actually. So when you're looking to move to a place to spend one to 12 months there as a digital nomad, uh, an extended period of time, try looking up expats in blank 
okay. uh, the name of the city or the country. I know that that's a problematic term, but it's the one most uh, Facebook groups are under. So uh, expats in split Croatia, for example, um, digital nomads in Zagreb, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in Croatia currently, and I've used the Facebook groups here to see kind of what kind of meetups and events are going on. It's definitely an option. Also, considering going for your accommodation first and your destination second, um, there are websites like co-living.com, Anyplace. I mean, these digital nomad co-living websites are popping up like popcorn these days. There's a new one every week. It's very hard to keep track. Personally, I've been using co-living.com for a long time. But especially if you're interested in collaborating and networking, a good place to start is the nomad co-living co-working house. And also the, the more rural you go, typically the more sustainable it's going to be. It's easy to DIY in a city, but it's also easy to not DIY in a, a place outside of the city. Using a digital nomad co-living co-working place with a house manager um, or a community manager who's focused on making your impact sustainable and, and building your relationships with the local community. So if you're looking to be part of a digital nomad house, mm -hmm. looking for resources that have co-living spaces with community managers and a sustainable mission is a great place to look as well. I use co-living, but I know there are a lot of websites that do the same thing. When doing your research and, and considering resources for women who travel solo, a big one that's overlooked is yourself. You need to do some research with yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> internally, right? Yeah. How do I work best? What are the non-negotiables that I need in my work-life balance? What do I want my daily schedule to look like? When I have time outside of work, what do I want to be doing with that time, right? How involved do I want to be in the local community? Um, do I thrive in more urban or rural environments? Do I want to learn a new language or is that something I can't really add to my plate right now? These things will help you choose your destination, um, choose whether you're building your own business or looking for a work from anywhere remote uh, corporate job or even the hours that you set and the types of places that you live in the destination you've chosen, right? So it, it can be as simple as I don't like the snow. <laughs> Right. Here I am as someone who doesn't like the snow in Eastern Europe in winter, thinking, hmm, why am I a little depressed? <laughs> Duh. So I think some of it is is knowing yourself and yeah. remembering that. I think sometimes the longer you're on, on, on the road, you can get a little arrogant. The one thing I can always remind myself of is five years into this, I chose to spend the winter in Eastern yeah. Europe, <laughs> knowing that I'm someone who needs a lot of sunshine and a lot of social connection. So um, you're going to make mistakes, right? And one of the best things about the resources and the Facebook groups and the digital communities is that you can talk about those, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the best travel stories I've ever read and the ones I've learned the most from or listened to and the ones I've learned the most lessons from were what we call travel mishaps or travel disasters, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the more you make friends with these people, the more you can get you know, you know, the primary resource are the friendships and the community. We talk about the Facebook groups and the apps, you know, the Bumble BFFs, the Girls Who Travel Facebook group. Those are the means to the end. The real resource 
is community with other women who travel solo. And those relationships are going to be your best encyclopedia. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the, the closer those relationships get, the more you'll be able to talk about the stuff that you can't really Google, right? I remember calling a friend of mine who I knew had traveled extensively in Southeast Asia on my second day in China. <laughs> I was in the bathroom of a metro station and I was like, okay, walk me through this. How do I use a squatting toilet, right? <laughs> it, it's it's not glamorous and no one is going to give you a how-to how-cast on this yeah. on the internet. This is not really Googleable, yeah. right? Um, no one's going to tell you, right, okay, after how many days of food poisoning-like symptoms do I need to go to a doctor, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, how, you know, am I going to be safe going to a gynecologist in this country, right? little things from the medical to the, you know, what's a good place to, to get your hair done here? Everything from, you know, the medical to the personal mm -hmm. to the spiritual, your greatest resource are the relationships you build with other solo traveling women. And they will be your human encyclopedia, your mm -hmm. support, and you will also be that for them. So the best resource is, is within yourself, and relationship building. And there are great digital tools for that. Um, whichever one works best for you, go for and and focus on creating that community. Yeah, I have to say that I, I agree completely. And also the fa Facebook has been kind of a lifesaver for me because I didn't realize how much it's used in the rest of the world. And especially out here in Mauritius, it seems to be the place where even businesses use it to advertise their products because they're not that advanced when it comes to technology, but Facebook has been a way for people to still connect. So it's been, as you say, like a really good place to meet people. And there's so many digital nomads on there and people traveling around and you can find someone else, you know, that you've got something in common with. So it's, um yeah, it's been a really good sort of alternative way of kind of connecting with people and sharing experiences. But thank you so much for joining me today. Um, that brings us to the end of this episode. We will leave Kristen's details in this episode's description so you can reach out to her with all of the questions on traveling solo. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review.